got your Bibles, I didn't get you to invite you to get them out. Uh, we're going to be looking at them again today, as always. Every Sunday we open our Bibles and try to see what God has for us today. We've been in the book of Revelation for a long time now, uh, several uh, months, I guess it's been like that. We're going to be back in there today. Um, We've got a lot of things to cover, like usual, and we kind of got to set the stage so we know where we're going today. And like I said, we have been studying the book of Revelation. We've gotten through several of the chapters now. We're up to chapter 8 in Revelation. What we need to remember when uh, we are studying this book, one of the things that we need to remember anyway, is that what Jesus is doing here is he's answering his disciples' questions about what's next. Remember when he's going back to heaven, he's like, hey, the disciples are like, hey, is it time for the kingdom now? And Jesus is like, uh, no, it's not. In fact, uh, there's some other things you got to do first. You guys are going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria. And then, you know, 60 years later, Jesus comes back and gives John some more information on that subject. On Okay, what, what is going to happen here at the time of the end? Because there is a time... Uh, determined for the end of this age, which will culminate in the transition into an age to come. What the Bible would say is, is the kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Christ, will come to this world, and there is going to be an unprecedented period of trouble and turmoil for seven years leading up to that. And that's really what uh, Daniel described in Daniel chapter 9. is Daniel's 70th week, God had revealed to Daniel, there's the guy have a plan and it's going to take this, and there's going to be these things that happen, and all of it is going to culminate at the end of the age with a period of seven years where I am going to accomplish everything that I said I would. And this seven-year period now is described mostly in Revelation. It's pretty much the description of the seven-year period at the end of the age, and some more things ha added on there. I mean, it starts with the revealing of the man of sin or the Antichrist, and it proceeds from there. The other thing that God always uh, seems to be reminding us through all of the scriptures and through all of Revelation is that there's this time for his people that is coming upon them at the end of the age that is called the, the time of Jacob's trouble. Or it's um, the abomination of desolation. The desolations are decreed for the end for his people. And what Jesus reveals to us in Revelation is very similar to what he had already revealed to his disciples. If you want to flip back there, you can in your Bible into pages of uh, Matthew 24 where Jesus is answering his disciples' questions again. Hey, uh, he had already told them, there's going to be problems. All this temple that you see, it's all coming down. And they're like, hey, what are you talking about? Uh, how come that's going to happen? What's going to be the sign of all of these things happening when you come back? And he basically lays out uh, the structure of Revelation in Matthew 24. He talks about this time where there's going to be wars and disease and famines and earthquakes at the end leading up into the final week. The, the final seven years, Jesus calls those things the beginning of birth pains, and they'll lead to increased tribulation for the people of God and increased persecution, and they will end up even in death. And all of that will lead up to the end, to the great terrible tribulation of the end, and the, the end will arrive with great signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Well, John, and as an old man, is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there, and Jesus has appeared to him to give him some more information about all of this. You can flip back in your 
Bible there to Revelation, even in Revelation chapter 1, we see the whole point of this. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ was God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. There's some things that are going to happen, God says, I want to show you what those are. John goes on in chapter 1, verse 9, and he says, I, John, your partner in the things that are going to happen. And what are the things that are going to happen? Tribulation and a kingdom and patient endurance while that goes on. That's what John says this is all about. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What's this whole book going to be about? What's this vision that John is going to see? It's going to be about patient endurance through tribulation and into the kingdom. And then Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. We've had several weeks on that section. Uh, there are uh, specific messages to specific churches at that time. And after that, in chapter 2 and 3, we get to chapter 4. It says this, chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, it's Jesus. And Jesus said... Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after this. And then we have the chapters 4 and 5, and we spent a little time in this. There's really three visions in chapters 4 and 5, almost kind of like a past, pet, present, and future sort of idea of what Jesus shows John. Remember, Jesus is showing John video clips. That's kind of the way to think about this. God, Jesus has got, uh, you know, they got the cooler out and the barbecue and they're watching on the beach. They got this, the, this, this, the movie theater going and Jesus is like, okay, John, watch this. Okay, wait a second. Now watch this. Now wait a second. Now back up a second. You got to know this. And Jesus just keeps adding in more and more information piece by piece. And one of the first things he wants John to see is this vision of the throne room. And chapter four really is a picture of what was kind of, it still is, but it's the Old Testament picture of God in his throne room with the cherubim and the, and the, um, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's, it's almost as identical uh, to what Ezekiel and Isaiah have already showed us and uh, to some degree, Dan, degree Daniel. And then we get to the uh, fifth chapter, and the fifth chapter really has two visions. Um, the end of chapter 5 really is what is to come. Verses 11 to 14, you can, you can see there, there's a united creation singing the praises of the Lamb and God. And just so you know, hey, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, not all of creation sings the praises of God. Well, not everybody yet worships Yahweh. Not everybody yet acknowledges the Lamb as the Lord and Savior of all. But that day's coming. And Jesus makes sure John knows that that day is coming. He shows John a picture of that day. But then there's this vision in the, in the middle. That's what uh, verses 1 to 10 are. It's like, okay, what now? And we've been through this scene, and we see God's throne room again, and God is holding out his hand with a seven-sealed scroll in it, and there is nobody that can take it until... Lion of the tribe of Judah shows up, and he is found worthy to take the scroll, and he does. And then heaven breaks forth in a new song. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's, a, that's quite a song. The 
look at verse 10 again. Don't, this, don't let this slide by you. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, that promise is one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible. And remember, when I, when I say mystery, it, it doesn't mean we're never, never going to know the answer. It just means a story that hasn't been fully revealed all at once. God is revealing this story over time. This promise that has been given has been one of the main storylines of the entire Bible, actually. One of the most intriguing subjects that we can think about in the Bible. What exactly does this mean? And how exactly does this happen? How is it that God has made a nation of priests that rule on the earth? Because this promise really has its beginnings back in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1. Genesis, man was given dominion over the earth. Man was tasked with ruling over everything. God said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth and fill it, over everything that is in it. But if you've read any farther than chapter 2 in the Bible, you know um, that that didn't, didn't quite go like that. That God's good design becomes corrupted by sin, and Adam and his wife Eve find themselves naked and ashamed and cast out of God's presence and doomed to die. And mankind's dominion over the earth is corrupted along with them. Which, in short order, leads to all the nations of the earth becoming corrupt and opposed to the purposes of God. Well, in that scenario, after that has played out for a while, God decides, I'm going to choose one man. And I'm going to do something different here. And God chooses a man and he goes to him and he promises that man, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will make your offspring as plentiful as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And I will make them into a nation that will bless all the other nations. That man was Abraham. Abraham said this in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, fast forward 400 years or so, and we see God delivering his promised nation from slavery in Egypt and leading them into the promised land the land that he had promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. And at this time, God's going to reveal more about this nation that he has created. Remember, we spent some time last week or the week before, I can't remember, talking about like Israel was made out of nothing, right? God created it miraculously. It's his idea, it's his plan, it's his nation, and God is going to reveal some more. Not only is this nation going to be blessed with prosperity and strength one day, God says in Exodus 19, You shall be my treasured possession among all nations, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, That's like 1400 BC he said that. 
And here we are, 2000 A.D. That's never come true. This is what God had promised the children of Israel, the nation he made. One day, you're all going to be priests. And they would have been like, what are you talking about? Because this is a pretty big deal, right? Considering one of the most well-known lessons that God had to teach his people when they were in the wilderness was the lesson that you're not all priests. That's what he wanted to teach them. And many people died learning that lesson. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Korah's rebellion. There's a story of this a guy and a, a couple of his buddies who what they decide is, uh, you know what? God has told us that we are his chosen people. We are all his people, aren't we? Aren't we all under the blessing of God? I think we should all be priests. That's what Korah was thinking. Um, and so he gathers his family, and they like, oh, that's a good idea. And then he goes to Moses, and Moses is like, oh, man, okay. And then they gather like hundreds and hundreds of men. They're like, we're going to be priests too. We're, 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 we're holy. We're, we're, we're just like Aaron and his sons whom God has chosen to be priests. No reason we can't be priests. And uh, God's like, uh, okay, get them all over here. Gather them all up in front of them and say, yeah, it's not going to be like that. This is not how this is going to work. Um, I decide who can be close to me. I decide who will stand in my temple. That's what God is saying. And the message is clear. No one comes into my presence. No one can even survive being near me long enough to even offer your sacrifices and prayers unless it's me letting them. And of course... God makes that very clear, and the ground open up, going grounds opens up and swallows Korah and his brothers and their families, and the 250 men that stood there pretending that they were going to be priests were also killed. God's like, no, nobody can come near me. What do you mean then, God? What, we're supposed to be a nation of priests and kings, and you, we even talk about it, and we get wiped out? How is this going to happen? How are these people going to be transformed into a nation of priests? How is God going to take these people who are not even fit to serve him in the temple at all and transform them into a nation of priests who reign on the earth? That's one of the main storylines of the Bible. And we've been studying one of God's answers to that question. Revelation is the story of the present age transitioning into the next age, and it's the story of this present age where his people are not fit for priesthood to an age where God's people are all priests. We've been studying Revelation for a few months now, and, and I hope we're starting to get a handle on what Jesus is saying to John and what Jesus is showing John here. And we, We've looked at chapter 6. Just look back in your Bibles for a second. The breaking of the seven-sealed scroll. So there's a seven-sealed scroll. Jesus is found worthy to take it. He takes it. He begins to break the seals open one at a time. And again, it's a pretty similar story to what Jesus told his disciples in uh, Matthew 24. Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years of this age, kicks off the scene with the first rider on the white horse in the first seal, and the next three riders are his accompanying destruction on the earth of war, famine, and disease. And then we see the fifth seal and the martyrdom that grips the earth at that time, the people of God calling out in prayer for God to intervene and save them. But God says, not yet. It's not time yet. There's still more to die. 
And then we see the cosmic signs in heaven as the day of the Lord approaches, when Jesus opens the sixth seal. We see the inhabitants of the earth running and hiding from God in fear. And we see them asking this question at the end of chapter 6, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who's going to survive this, is what they're saying. And the answer to that question comes in chapter 7. Who can survive? Everyone that God says can survive, that's who. All of God's people are going to survive this. You're not going to get one. Everyone who is chosen to survive will. Some are chosen to survive on the earth, and they will. And some are chosen to die on earth, but stand forever in eternity in God's presence. And God knows who are his, and he will not lose one. He's paying attention. The wrath of the lamb has come. Who can stand? The lamb's people. That's who can stand. And that brings us to the next section of this book, and that's chapter 8, where we get to the seventh seal. Let me just read this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censure, just a bowl, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, so what's happening here? After all of that, after all the wonder and the terror of the first six seals, here comes the last one, and nothing. Crickets. Silence. What's going on here? Well, this, uh, John would have known immediately what is happening here, uh, because he would have seen this happen every day of his life. At least every day he was hanging around the temple, he would have seen this, um, There is uh, the morning offering, the regular morning offering, and the regular evening offering are something that would happen every day in the temple in Jerusalem. And at 9 o'clock in the morning, they would take a lamb and they would slaughter it on the altar. And then that lamb and the the coals that were there would stay there all day. And that's when prayer would begin at 9 o'clock in the morning with the first sacrifice, the cleansing of the altar with the slain lamb. And that would burn all day. And then six hours later at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they would have what they call the evening sacrifice. And another lamb would be brought and it would be sacrificed on the altar as well and burnt. And then what happens is they take the coals from that offering after the afternoon, the evening offering, and they take it inside the temple to the altar of incense. This is where only priests could go in there. This is the story of uh, Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, right? The story of the the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist says this, Luke chapter 1, now when he was serving as a priest before God, when Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, this is basically, you would get to do this once in your life. They made sure that nobody got to do it twice. There's too many people that wanted to do it. Once in your life, you would get to be the priest who scooped up the coals of the 
evening sacrifice and carried them in to the altar of incense and put them on the altar and poured the incense on the altar and the smoke would fill the chamber. Here's what's happening there. God is setting the altar to receive the prayers of his people and they pray all day and then God scoops up all the prayers and brings them into his temple and he sets them on the altar of incense and they rise to heaven and everybody is quiet as this happens and they stand in the courtyard and pray silently as their prayers rise to heaven and God is listening is the point. This is what's been happening here. His, his people have been praying and praying, God, come. God, avenge our blood. God, come reign on the earth. God, come save us. And here we see in this scene, we'll get into it more uh, another week. Here we see in this scene, heaven is silent as God listens to the prayers of his people. But he doesn't listen forever because he's going to act. And he picks up his fury and he begins to act in response to his people. That's what's going on there. Even it says when uh, Zechariah was in the temple, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This happened every day and in the temple, and it's happening here. God is listening to the prayers of his people, and he is going to respond. The opening of the seventh seal is God's response to his people's prayers. And it doesn't just lead to silence as God listens and waits to act. God's going to do something. And it leads to seven angels holding seven trumpets. And with their sounding, God is going to begin to answer his people's prayers for his intervention on the earth. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens when these trumpets are sounded one after another. You can read in there to the end of chapter uh, 8 basically is the first four trumpets. And then the, th the last three trumpets kind of get a special designation here. Uh, they're called the three woes. Um, you can see in Revelation chapter 8, the last verse, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to the, those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So you can see the, the fifth angel sounds the trumpet there in the beginning of chapter 9. The sixth angel sounds their trumpet in the end of chapter 9. And then, much like we had a parenthetical section after the first six seals, we now have a parenthetical section after the first six trumpets. That's chapter 11 and most of chapter, sorry, chapter 10 and most of chapter 11. And then we get to the seventh trumpet. Okay, that brings us to the end of the, really, the end of the big first section of Revelation. The big first section of Revelation that has descri describes the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And we move on to other things after chapter 11. But let me just, let me just tell you how, chap how the seven trumpets end. We can read that right there. 11, chap or chapter 11, verses 15 to 19 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. Quite a scene. We're going to get into all of this um, soon. Uh, just an announcement, I will, won't be here next week. My uh, daughter is getting married next weekend, so uh, we will be busy doing that and concentrating on that. Our friend Clayton Dugan will be here next week, and he'll bring us a, a message. For those of you who know Clayton, um, uh, you know how uh, wonderful it is to listen to him. I'll be back the week after, and we will continue in the story of Revelation then, God willing. Um, I thought I'd just address a couple of things. We're trying to understand what's going on, right? We're trying to understand this book. We're trying to be like, what is, what is what, this? I've always thought this was so confusing. How can we know what it's saying here? Everybody argues about all of this. How can anybody actually know what this says? Well, you notice that uh, the, our subject matter, for the most part, has been in the news a lot the last week, right? The nation of Israel. Has it not been filling your Facebook feeds and YouTube video channel and Fox News and CBC News and every other news set is um, talking a lot about what is happening in Israel these days. And people have asked me what I think is going on there. What's, what's happening, Dan? Is this the end? Is this going to lead to a large-scale war? Or is it going to settle down to a simmer? Or is this going to lead to peace in the Middle East? Dan, you read the Bible. You're, you, you, know, you know, you study Bible prophecy. What's happening here? Does the Bible say What's going to happen here in this situation? Well, I have an answer. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. I have thoughts and conjectures like other people do, but I, I don't know what the next days and weeks have exactly in store for the nation of Israel and her neighbors. If you've got ideas, I'd, I'd love to hear them. Send them to me. Um, send me an email. Let me know your take on the situation. I do not know what is going to happen in Israel this week and how this particular season and these events are contributing to God's plan for his people. I don't know. But let me just share a couple of things that I do know about what is happening. The first thing is this. God's people are still not a nation of priests. Okay, nothing has changed in that department. They are not, at this time, God's holy nation. That is still in the future. Israel, for the most part, just, you know, they're, they're pretty much just like other Western countries. Right? They're pretty much just like us, largely secular. 18% right? or so are Muslim. 75% identify as Jewish. But it's Less than 10% of those who identify as Jewish in Israel are actually religiously living Jews. They are actually Orthodox Jews. The Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel are small minorities. They're even smaller than the percentage of Muslims. 
The majority in, of people in Israel are culturally Jewish, kind of like we are culturally Christian. Right? They're not really following the Lord. They really they have no passion for Yahweh and the things of God. Israel's not a holy nation of priests living under God's covenant blessing. Yet, the promises of that coming transformation have not yet been fulfilled, okay? That, that's true of what's happening in Israel right now. Whatever is happening is not because God is blessing them as his nation of priests yet. And the second thing I'd like to point out is about what the believing remnant of Jews who still worship Yahweh, what do they believe is happening in Israel right now? Not the secular forces. What do the people who read the Bible and know what it says and who follow the Torah and the prophets of the Old Testament, what do they think is happening? Well, would it surprise you to know that they are also waiting on the second coming? They are. God has already, according to Jewish religious belief, I think God has already come once to save them, right? He came and he led them out of Egypt with fire and cloud and power and miracle and he destroyed their enemies and he led them to Mount Sinai where he came down to personally speak with his people. God has already come once and the remnant of the Jewish people who still worship Yahweh are waiting and praying for him to come back again. Now that's a big topic. How um, what faithful Jews in Israel are waiting for and how what we Christians are waiting for, we're the same thing in the end. We're both waiting for God to return and rescue and redeem his people. Okay. That's what's going on in Israel. But that day's not right now. The nation of Israel is just as idolatrous and disobedient as ha they've always been. That's something else we've got to remember. The nation of Israel is presently idolatrous and they're worshiping the idol of peace again nothing wrong with peace of course but the peace that they seek right now as a secular nation is a peace based on their own efforts and their own strength the peace that they are pursuing now is based on the belief that they are the authors of their own destiny they will establish themselves and they will bring about their own security and their own prosperity and they will do it all without the God that made them. How pleased do we think God is about this? And they're going to do it how they've always done it. They're going to try and secure themselves how they always have by doing what God told them not to do. When he, when he moved them into the land, he's like, hey, don't make deals for your security with your neighbors. That's not going to go well. Not only should you not side with one neighbor against another, you should never depend on man for what only I can give you. God is like, don't depend on your neighbors for your safety. Don't trust your future to the kings of the earth. I am your security. I will protect you. I created you. I established you. I will preserve you. Don't trust anyone else for that. But what does Israel do over and over? The same thing they're doing today. Not calling out to God for protection and for peace. Ignoring God and turning 
in their own strength, trusting in their own strength, and making deals with the kings of the earth. Let me tell you this. There is no lasting peace coming for Israel from their own strength or from the hands of their neighbors. There is only betrayal and failure and destruction and heartache in store down that path for Israel. There will be no true peace for Israel until the Prince of Peace comes and brings it. And any peace promised before his arrival will not last. Desolations are decreed to the end, the angel told Daniel, and he wasn't lying. Remember, the story of Revelation started in Genesis. We've talked about this. This this is not something new. God is telling the same story from the beginning. And what is happening today in Israel started a long, long time ago. Let me, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen this week, but let me tell you something amazing that is happening. Something amazing that God is going to do in the Middle East. So you may not have realized or may not remember. An amazing thing that God has said he is going to do. Let me, let me ask you this question. Who are the Arabs? I know we hear a lot of names in the news about different groups and different peoples and different political movements and different factions of this. Who is this group of people, the Arabs? Where did they come from? Because they're the main players in the drama in Israel, right? This small piece of land on the western shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And the Arabs and the Jews have been fighting over it for centuries. They both claim that the land belongs to them. And this dispute regularly boils over into outright hatred and people killing each other. And if we're not careful, we can adopt a very, very unbiblical attitude to this whole situation. We can easily start thinking that what God is going to do to save and secure his people in the land is to destroy the Arabs. I mean, that could make sense in our minds, right? They're the chief antagonist. If they were removed, God's people would be safe. We're going to sing here in a second, you guys. Is that what God is going to do? Is that what God is doing? Is he in the process of doing this now? Remember back to the story of Abraham and the promises that God made to him? And God God made promises to Abraham. God made promises to Isaac. God made promises to Jacob. God made promises to all of Jacob's sons too. Those aren't the only promises God made. And God made some promises to Abraham's other son, his firstborn son. Ishmael. You can find in uh, Genesis chapter 16 the story of Hagar, Ishmael's mom, uh, Sarah's slave woman who is given to Abraham and she bears him a son, his firstborn son, Ishmael. The story of Hagar getting pregnant and Sarah being jealous of Hagar is in Genesis 16. And Hagar runs away. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear his, a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. God's like, why are you running away? I've got plans for you, Hagar. I've got plans for this baby that's not even born yet. In fact, he's going to be a boy, and he better call him Ishmael. God goes on. Ishmael's a, a young boy. And God appears to Abraham in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. So this is another reiteration of the promise. Don't, God, God's telling Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to bear a son too. And look, you can see what, uh, if you look it up, Genesis 17, 17 says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. <laughs> Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And listen to what he says. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's like, don't worry about another kid, God. Just do it all with Ishmael, right? Give your promises to Ishmael. He's the one that's already here. He's alive. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And the third section that deals with Ishmael is uh, after uh, Isaac is born. I Isaac's a, a little kid, basically. And uh, apparently, Ishmael is going around making fun of Isaac. He says, you know, Sarah saw Ishmael laughing at Isaac. It's really a weird Hebrew term. It means like aping. So he's giving an unflattering imitation of Isaac around the camp. He's making fun of him, right? He's like, whatever that, I don't know. He's trying to pretend he's Isaac in a goofy way, and Sarah's having none of it. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, it says in Genesis 21. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy or because of your slave women. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall be your off, for, sorry, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and skin and water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Okay, so a Sarah doesn't want Hagar and Ishmael around. God says, okay, Abraham, go ahead. I got plans for them, but go ahead and do whatever Sarah wants. Just kick them out then. Fine. Well, the one the water skin was gone, Hagar put the child under one of the bushes and she went and sat down opposite him, opposite Ishmael, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. And she said, let me not look at the death of the child. Is this boy going to die? Of course not. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. 
God's promise to Hagar and to Ishmael has come true. The descendants of her son are a gigantically numerous people. They're the Arabs, or at least the Arab nations are formed mostly out of the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael. So Abraham has two sons of promise, not one. Two sons to whom God has made promises. Two sons who have argued and killed each other over those promises for over 3,000 years now. And they're still at it today. What's going to happen in Israel this week or this month or this year? Is God going to save the Jews by destroying the Arabs? Does Abraham love his sons? Do you love your children? Mostly. <laughs> of course Abraham loves his sons. Does God love Abraham? Of course he does. He calls Abraham his friend. This idea that God hates Arabs, that's terrible. That God is going to destroy one son of Abraham to save the other one? is woefully short of God's heart for the family of his friend Abraham, whom he says that he loves. God is coming to save the Jews, and he's coming to save the Arabs too. The divided house of Abraham will be put back together one day. Our God never loses. He will do what he said he would do. He will preserve the house of Isaac and he will preserve the house of Ishmael. This is how our God is. This is how he works. This is what he always does. He takes things that look impossible to us and he makes them happen anyway. He takes situations that have no solution and he makes a way where there is no way. And it may look like after centuries of hatred and animosity that Arabs and Jews are destined to kill and destroy each other. Hey, that they're never going to get along. And apart from a miracle, that's true. But our God makes things out of nothing and he gives life to the dead and he can do anything and he can even heal the divided house of Abraham and turn the descendants of Ishmael towards the hearts of the descendants of Isaac and vice versa and he will. Our God loves to take things that are broken beyond repair and put them back together in a way that creates something greater than anyone could ever imagine. That's what our God does. Look, God has made a way for all of mankind to be reconciled to him through his son. In him we have redemption through his blood. He said the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. That is what God is doing, uniting all things in our King and Lord. And if our God can do that, he can put all of heaven and all of earth back together. He can certainly heal the tents of Abraham that have been broken for 3,000 years. And this day will come and all of heaven and earth will marvel at what God has done. And there will be no contesting 
that it's the Prince of Peace that deserves all of the glory for it.